Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral fellows involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. With SARS-CoV-2 cases and deaths continuing to rise, we are waiting to hear about the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies and vaccines for preventing or ameliorating COVID-19 disease. On October 21st, 2020, we talked with Dr. David Martinez, a postdoctoral researcher in the Barrick Lab at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who has been working to characterize novel therapies and vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. David obtained his PhD in molecular genetics and microbiology from Duke University studying HIV and has been working to understand how viruses such as flaviviruses and coronaviruses evade host immune responses. Hi, David, happy to have you with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thank you very much, Larissa. So I'm a postdoctoral fellow and uh, Dr. Rolf Barrick's lab at UNC. I uh, study viruses. I uh, received my PhD from Duke University in uh, Dr. Sally Permar's lab, where I studied uh, immunity to HIV. And I moved over just across the street to UNC. um, And uh, I began my postdoc in Dr. Barrick's lab. How did you become interested in virology research way back when? So I was sort of always interested in microbiology in general. So as a kid, Um, My dad uh, had bought me a microscope uh, when I was um, probably about five or six years old. Um, He was a physician, actually. And uh, on the second story of his clinic, he actually had this diagnostic laboratory for just standard uh, clinical um, diagnoses. And I used to play up there. So I was always sort of familiar with these uh, machines that I had no idea what they did. But Nevertheless, you know, the lab was a, a place that I played. Um, so he had bought me this microscope and I was always just sort of interested in nature um, and uh, microorganisms in general. Um, so I, I really, I, I guess that's my earliest memory of, of me being interested in microbiology. Um, and uh, senior year of high school, I had decided that I was going to attend the University of Oklahoma and they in fact had a microbiology uh, degree uh, program. So I was a micro major from day one. Um, and I, I became really interested in viruses, in particular, um, my senior year of undergraduate, where I took this um, a virology course uh, with uh, a couple of virologists, in fact, at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and I just became fascinated how these tiny little, um, mol- you know, essentially like tiny little genomes could really just manipulate the cell to do these crazy things. Um, And I just wanted to learn more about them. Cool. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the steps that you took from undergraduate to graduate and so on to sort of get to where you are in your career today? Yeah. So I, I guess, began my first formal, uh, maybe training in virology in uh, Dr. Robert Kaleda's lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, during an undergraduate uh, summer research program. And there I was uh, studying uh, cytomegalovirus proteins and how they modulate 
um, immunity um, and and sort of uh, infectivity in uh, in human cells. Uh, so that was really my first uh, sort of experience with what I would call real virology uh, in a lab and, and really doing um, more uh, cellular biology uh, and, this, and sort of the context of viruses. Um, so I think after that, I sort of became interested uh, in maybe uh, maybe back then was and, and even until I would say 2020, you know, what I what in my mind I thought was sort of the the holy grail or the, you know, the, the coolest virus because it was the most difficult one and that was HIV. So um, I, you know, research which programs uh, had really just uh, really, you know, re really active in, in, in top uh, HIV research. Um, and really just based on that, you know, I, I selected which schools I would apply to. Um, and I ended up at Duke, um, actually, um, they, they had, uh, for a number of years, uh, some really active work in this sort and the sort of the HIV vaccine uh, side of side side of the HIV field, which is now, I mean, until recently, it's actually now what's sort of uh, maybe still on the up. I mean, sort of the pathogenesis uh, didn't really exist anymore. There's only a couple of labs that were doing that. Right. So yeah, I mean, it was sort of a you know I wanted to study the maybe the hardest virus to. Um, that, that in my mind, I thought was the hardest virus because, you know, here we were 30 years later with still no vaccine um, and we still don't have a vaccine. Uh, so um, that's that's how I came to um, to Duke University to to study HIV. And how about um, when you were looking for your postdoc? So what was the next step for you? Yeah, so. I was still interested in viruses and um, I knew that I didn't want to do HIV anymore. Um, so, you know, that that was a really good training, I, I think, for me, but um, I was sort of ready to shift gears. And um, it's funny because I thought, you know, the HIV field is um, almost saturated and, and hyper, hyper competitive. You know, I almost thought like you have to be part of, you know, a handful of groups um, and you sort of have to have a senior role in these groups to be able to, um, be able to to do um, I think really uh, really meaningful studies. Um, no offense to everybody else, but you know this is sort of where the conclusion I came to at, at the end of my PhD. So I thought, well, I need to pick something that's um, still important um, and and maybe not as saturated and and competitive at the at the very high levels. Um, so I came to the Bear Club um, to study flaviviruses, and I still study flaviviruses. Um, in fact, uh, uh, just had my first uh, postdoc paper published on flaviviruses, that is, um, uh, earlier this month. Uh, and, you know, funny enough, right, I left this hyper-competitive field um, and being in the Barrick lab, of course, you know, we've all been um, happily, I think, sucked into the COVID-19 work. Um, so I left probably what I thought was a highly competitive field to perhaps the most competitive field that, I think I should be careful in saying this, but I would be very surprised if it's not the most competitive field uh, out there, at least for biomedical sciences, at least at the moment, you know, as of um, October 21st of 2020, um, you know, it, we talk to the editors, right, of whenever we're getting ready to submit a paper and they tell you we're interested today, but you know, this could change by the time we get the reviews back kind of thing. So. Um, so that's how I picked, you know, the, the Barrick lab was, um, I still wanted to stay in viruses, but not necessarily HIV. 
Um, and now I'm sort of at this uh, emerging virus um, interface, uh, both of studying both flaviviruses and coronaviruses. Um, right. So to follow up a little bit more on that, can you tell us about this work that you just uh, published on dengue, I think it was, right? Correct. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, that was a project that I initiated uh, early on whenever I began my postdoc here in the lab. And um, that was, uh, at least for me, you know, of course, every, maybe everybody thinks that about their paper, but um, what I think that paper um, contributes to the field and, and sort of, you know, what um, maybe it's like, I'll just give you like the 30,000 foot view is yeah. that, you know, historically in, in the dengue field, uh, there is sort of this, you know, dogma or sort of like traditional thinking that um, immunity to a single serotype um, is generally broadly protective against that serotype. Um, I wouldn't say essentially forever, but you know, for a long time. And what this study really showed was that um, there is a great uh, diversity, genetic diversity in, uh, within a single serotype. In fact, if you were to break up um, the genotypic diversity within different genotypes, what we demonstrated was that this genetic diversity um, can really alter the ability of dengue virus to evade neutralizing antibodies I mean, humans. So um, neutralizing antibodies, in fact, in the setting of uh, vaccines, uh, some dengue vaccines that are now in advanced clinical trials. So um, I think it really underlines that, you know, we need to, uh, no, I wouldn't say necessarily stop what we're doing, but sort of think, ab think about it a little more carefully and how we're designing uh, the current dengue vaccines, because in my opinion, they're not really being designed uh, with this question in mind and how we, how we can target all of the different genotype, genotypic variants within a serotype. So I think that's really what this study shows. Cool, cool. And um, you mentioned that you obviously have been doing a lot of work with SARS and COVID-19 related research. Can you tell us um, a little bit about that work? Yeah, so um, I would say, you know, sort of for the first, uh, you know, maybe six months or so in the, in the Barrick lab, um, I was uh, uh, at least, I'm sorry, let me rewind, maybe within the six months or so since uh, COVID-19 really took off um, in, in the world, really, because we, we started working on COVID-19 along with many other groups um, once the genome was released um, in, in China. So for the first few months, I was really sort of playing an ancillary role and um, really trying to help um, the clinical products get off the ground. So in fact, with a collaboration uh, with you, Larissa, um, with uh, the Crow Lab, um, you know, then that, that worked really um, focused on um, isolating and characterizing antibodies that could be protective in animal models. Um, and those antibodies have now been licensed to a major company, um, AstraZeneca. Um, and uh, through work with uh, other collaborators um, that uh, came through our lab sort of, um, then we've been, we've been really involved with uh, two of the Operation Warp Speed vaccines, uh, both Johnson & Johnson, um, a lot of the non-human primate work, um, as well as the Moderna vaccine, both the mouse and the non-human primate uh, models of infection. Um, um, and, and really sort of, uh, you know, trying to help these major products move forward. Um, also the Eli Lilly antibody, um, you know, we, we uh, played a role in that as well. So um, the first few months was, you know, really just trying to uh, get my bearing in the BSL-3. I had actually just completed my BSL-3 training in March of this year. So, you know, the timing was just absolutely perfect as far as, you know, being able to, um, you know, to get on these studies, but I would say really, you know, just try to contribute to the public health um, effort. 
Um, and I would say, you know, the last uh, few months, and I've sort of pivoted to my, my own COVID-19 work um, and pushing forward my projects. Um, so hopefully in the coming months, you know, then uh, we can share uh, a lot more details about those. Great, great. And what's it like actually working on something that's so immediately relevant on public health? So in virology and immunology, often you work many hours for long periods of time and the the relevance of it is, you know, years later, you know, if you if you even get that. So what's that like? Well, you know, I would say, you know, for me, and I've always sort of had this mentality of uh, always in the back of our of my mind thinking, you know, how does this benefit public health in general? And, and how do I set up experiments so so we can try to have an impact on on global health? Um, so for me, it's been extremely rewarding, um, just sort of seeing um, you know, these products take off in the clinic. Um, and, and really, at least the early data that we see in animals, you know, looks looks really good. So for me, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience um, and has really just re-cemented um, that initial, um, initial desire to contribute to public health. So, I mean, I, I'm obviously probably like most um, people on your podcast, you know, really nerdy and into science, but as much as I love science, you know, I still want my, my science to be meaningful to, to, to the taxpayers that are actually funding the work that we do here. So um, it's been really just a rewarding experience. Um, and I think um, maybe that's been underlined by, uh, I think most virologies are in super high demand now, but by the constant um, stream of questions from family members and from friends, you know, that I, I really think are just curious about what's going on so um, for me, it's, it's been uh, really cool to, to see the, the work that we do have a, a, a major impact. Cool, cool. Um, and I guess sort of more generally, so up in your career so far, what has been the most exciting sort of eureka science moment? Yeah, so, you know, I think you definitely have that all the time in the lab of, you know, this tiny moment of discovery where um, you're the only person in the world um, that knows uh, understands a certain pro a certain process. So, you know, for me, this was uh, and actually my first uh, PhD project that, um, that 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 I did uh, and published. Um, and you know, that's still probably my favorite paper from graduate school. It certainly was not my most my, my highest impact paper, but it was my, it's still my favorite because I sort of remember you know this long process that I went through um, and and sort of worked really hard to get there. You know, um, so for me, it was actually. Um, you know, mapping and, you know, that this is probably not exciting for a lot of people, but for me it was, and it still is, you know, whenever I read this paper and it's sort of nostalgic that I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, you know, this was, this was like the first three years of my PhD or, or what have you. Um, but it was mapping uh, the, this protective uh, antibody response to this region on an HIV glycoprotein, uh, which is GP120, but the specific region was the variable loop three. So the V3 region. Um, so I had actually done extensive mapping, and once I received um, analyses back from uh, the statisticians we were working with, you know, then my PI, my PI and I had actually sat down. So maybe PI means you know, the, the head of the laboratory for, for people out there that may not know what a PI is. So we sat down and we were reviewing this data, and, uh, you know, w once we were interpreting the, you know, the the results from the statistician that it became clear that we had mapped it to this very specific region within the V3 and particularly this amino acid residue 317 to this phenylalanine, um, you know, which at the time was was really 
was really cool for me, you know, to be able to map it down to um, a single amino acid residue that this protective uh, immune response, uh, antibody response, in fact, in HIV infected women that did not vertically transmit the virus uh, to their to their infant. So um, for me, it was cool. Um, and I, I would say that was maybe, uh, you know, a, a really memorable um, sort of discovery moment in, in my yeah. scientific training. Um, what about, so conversely, what has been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist so far, and how did you overcome it? Um, you know, I, I would sort of just say, um, maybe it's just sort of the process of science. I think for me, um, you know, maybe to my to my own um, disadvantage is that I, I get impatient sometimes, and sometimes the, you know, the pace of my work, um, you know, even, even when, you know, you think you're working really hard, but sometimes you, you're just not satisfied with the pace at which the science is actually moving. You know, you wish you had the answers faster than you do. Um, so for me, that's sort of been maybe uh, what I would say is perhaps my, my biggest struggle. I, I don't know if I would pinpoint it to, to a certain time where, you know, things weren't working, but of course, you know, everybody has dry spells. Um, but I, I would just say, you know, maybe just being impatient, but, you know, maybe, maybe I could, I could pinpoint it to a time, you know, I would say maybe after my, um, my preliminary exam defense and during my PhD, I was sort of really discouraged because I was, you know, I, I'm really hard on myself and I, you know, I didn't think I did as well as I thought I should have done, you know, and of course I passed and everything and, you know, everybody said it was fine, but I didn't think it went, you know, perfectly like I wanted it to. Um, so I was sort of really discouraged, you know, and was even, uh, you know, sort of planning my exodus after my PhD to, um, you know, I mean, no offense to anybody, because my, my wife is in industry, but you know, that I was going to go to industry and just sort of be done with all these things. But, you know, then you, th then you get a cool finding in the lab, or, or you, um, you know, you have one good idea out there. And then you see a paper that, you know, is published a few months later, and, and it's, it's something similar to what you were thinking. Um, and, and then that sort of brings you back up, you know, and, and you get excited again. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess sort of, um, more globally, if you had a chance to ask your older self, say you when you're 60 or 70, one question, what would it be? Well, um, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like most people who, who think about this, um, or, or maybe who, who have an answer for this, I don't necessarily think they talk about work per se. Um, I don't know, I, I would hope that, you know, I would hope that I would be able to ask myself if I was um, a good person and, and made um, prioritizing things in life that are actually priority. Um, and I think, you know, maybe once you reach a certain age, like 70 or 80, then you sort of realize what the real priorities are. Hopefully you realize it earlier. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I just, I just really hope that, um, that I am able to have the same priorities then that I have now and hope that those align because hopefully it means that I've, I prioritize my time, uh, correctly on my short time on this earth. I guess to follow up on that, so people often talk a lot about work-life balance, things like this. Um, what do you do to achieve that? And how has that changed potentially during the COVID pandemic? 
Yeah, so um, everybody obviously that works on COVID, um, you know, uh, they work pretty hard, I think, and, and long hours. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's always a long thing, but it's more of a constant thing. It's always sort of this marathon, right? That um, you always have something on the weekend to do, even if it's a half day, but it's always, you know, having to come in and always sort of be here. So uh, for me, you know, one thing that has really helped me sort of escape um, reality maybe is uh, going on a daily walk with my spouse. So my wife and I will take a 30 minute walk around our neighborhood. And uh, we just really try to talk, you know, just talk through our days and just catch up on life in general. Um, and it's a good time to, for me to just unplug and not really think about my experiments and, and the results that I got and sort of like my, what my next steps are. Um, and along those lines, you know, is um, on Sunday morning, um, we typically uh, try to go uh, on a hike um, to local places, pretty pretty nearby areas here. Um, so that's one mechanism for us to unplug from from what's happening with COVID and uh, try to reset your brain a little bit. So that yeah. that's been it for me. Yeah. So I guess um, to follow up on that, um, as a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself or your family safe? So how do you make decisions about risk for various activities that you have to do? Yeah, you know, I would say it's probably, you know, maybe no different than uh, things that people can readily uh, read on, on maybe like the CDC website, but maybe, um, maybe how it's a little bit different for us is that maybe we have a access to that information before it becomes widely accepted for example so an example that i'll give is that um early on in the pandemic uh, sort of before you know the the whole mass thing became a widespread um as we were looking at the infectivity of uh, the sars-2 coronavirus for the ability to infect uh cells in the nose and once it became clear from the data that was coming off live from our lab that uh, nasal cells were in fact more permissive uh, to SARS-2 coronavirus, you know, then I think that really uh, lended support for uh, widespread mass, mask use. So I, I, I wouldn't say that maybe as a virologist, I have um, maybe access to information that other people don't have, but maybe we have access to that information a little bit earlier because we sort of, you know, see what's happening in the news or, um, or, or what's happening in our, in our lab, really. Um, you find though that it's easier to sort of evaluate, you know, so for example, like going out to restaurants or traveling or sending your kids back to school, do you think it's potentially easier to evaluate those risks being a virologist? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, um, you know, not only a, a virologist, but I would just say someone with, uh, you know, that's that's science uh, oriented. You know, I think most, maybe most scientists could could maybe, um, at least biomedical scientists could 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 maybe come to the, some of these conclusions. But you know, I would say you're you're more hyper aware of um, things not to do. Like you know, for example, I'm I'm just maybe a little more of a germaphobe than I normally would be. Um, because of my virology training, maybe. Um, and actually, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I, could, I could really see that because my wife is also a scientist um, and now in industry, you know, but I would just say sometimes the way we uh, disinfect things or, or maybe, you know, whenever I've seen her 
handle stuff. I'm like, well, you know, you should really do it like this because if you were in the lab and you were removing this PPE, this is the way you'd want to do it to not contaminate or not try to do anything like this. Um, so maybe that's like, you know, one specific example, but um, I would just say uh, maybe you're just a little more hyper aware of, of germs around you and, and what could potentially be a contagion. Yeah. Um, what about, um, so with your family or your friends, do you find that people are reaching out to you with questions or, you know, wanting advice on certain things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say all the time, you know, um, I, I almost get, I feel like daily questions from family members um, and or friends about developments in the news. Um, you know, and then conversely, right, not only do you get questions, but, you know, sometimes you feel like, um, you know, your family members as, as well intending as they are, you know, they'll, they'll tell you <laughs> something that, you know, because of the work you're doing, you knew months ago, right? Or even years ago, because you're a virologist, right? Like, it's funny, because, you know, um, I've had, I've had a family member um, explain to me that the coronavirus is the coronavirus uh, causes this really um, inflammatory disease in the lung. Uh, to, you know, to which I nicely agreed with him. And it's like, yeah, you know, that's, that's what it does. I didn't want to tell them, you know, that we've actually known this for many, many years, because coronaviruses have, in fact, been around a long time. Um, and, and this has sort of been known for a long time. But, you yeah, know, yeah. so you, you kind of see both, right? I mean, of course, they're all intending, but you, you sort of see both sides of it. So, you know, you get really, um, really good questions, you know, about, um, I, I feel like recently, I've gotten a lot about the pause of, of both the Johnson and Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccines and why they're being paused, you know, um, and, and you try to do your best, you know, with, with the, with the ability, with the information you have. So at least right now with the, with the Johnson and Johnson, we don't know that the ad, the adverse event was potentially related to uh, an individual that received the vaccine or not. I don't think we know that information, but that's that's sort of been, uh, those are the types of questions that I that I get a lot from family members is just about where these uh, products are in clinical trials, um, you know, to, to the occasional um, explanation of something we've known for years. Um, it's always comical, you know, I just try to try to take it in, in, in a good light. Yeah. So um, we're winding down. Um, do you have any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about the future of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, I would just, uh, maybe to end on an optimistic note, you know, I would just say that, um, you know, hopefully the vaccines work as well in humans as they do in animal models. Um, and hopefully we learn a little more about um, the durability of these vaccines. So that's sort of a big question out there is, you know, how long is this protective immunity gonna last? And hopefully uh, we can as, as uh, a field and as citizens and as people of the world um, just collectively learn together. But, you know, I would just say um, there, there are a lot of things in the pipeline that um, should hopefully help to control the COVID-19 pandemic. and and hopefully things will turn up um, for the better in the coming months. Great, great. Well, thanks so much. David has been hard at work over the past couple months evaluating new therapies and vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 and is hopeful that these treatments will work in humans based on the results he has seen from animal models. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Music Podcasts, 
or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.